Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. We've known for a while that the polls were pointing to big wins for Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump last night. But I guess waking up this morning and thinking about the outcome, it is a little bit shocking. Two outsider candidates driven by many new voters trouncing so-called establishment candidates in the first in the nation primary of New Hampshire. But of course, New Hampshire is only the first in the nation. There's a long way to go. Today on The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, we'll talk about what last night might tell us about the rest of this presidential campaign. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, it's 860-275-7266. What did you see last night? Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining me, as always, in the wheelhouse is Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hello once again, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankosky. Joining us is Bill Curry. He's a columnist for Salon.com, and he's our political analyst. Hi there, Bill. Great to be here this morning, John. And also joining us is Kalila Brown-Dean. She's Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University. Always good to see you, Kalila. Good to see you, John. Okay, so Bernie Sanders had a resounding victory in New Hampshire last night, winning by more than 20% as of this morning's results. Here's Bernie Sanders. Democrats and progressives win when voter turnout is high. Republicans win when people are demoralized and voter turnout is low. So that's Bernie Sanders last night. Some interesting things in there, including what exactly it might mean for Republicans. We're going to start on the Democratic side of things. Bernie Sanders with about 89 percent of precincts reporting as of this morning from AP, 60 percent, Hillary Clinton, 38 percent. Colin, you wrote about this last night. You seem a little bit more taken aback by the size of the victory than than maybe I thought you'd be, than maybe a lot of us thought we'd be. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, show me the person who predicted a 22 percent margin. I was talking to Bill on the phone last night. I said, you know, at the end of the show, we should also say what the Powerball numbers are going to be tonight because, I mean, we probably have about as much chance of getting that stuff right. I just, I think we really are at a point now where, I mean, people talked about big margins. I don't think, I didn't hear anybody talk about 22%. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, this really is a kind of what's going to happen next election at this point. And, and for me, yeah, the, the piece that, uh, that I wrote last night, uh, to me, I also do, th- I'm wondering if it's the death of the spin doctor, you know, that, that the two people who seem to really grab the attention of the American electorate right now are the ones who are the most unscripted, the ones who are speaking their minds. I mean, n- you can have all kinds of doubts about Bernie Sanders. What you don't doubt is that he means what he says, that he's completely serious about this, that he's not, that it's not couched in some especially sugar-coated or appetizing way. He just says exactly what it is that he he hopes to be able to do. And and this has always been supposedly political suicide. And, and we don't know for sure that, that Donald Trump is absolutely serious about everything he says. Clearly, he's running a different sort of campaign. We'll be talking about the Republicans in a bit. But I don't know, Colin, when we see these large vic- uh, victory margins for Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, as we talked about yesterday uh, on the show with people from New Hampshire, you know, people on the ground, they were actually seeing some people who said, you know, my first choice is Donald Trump, but my second choice is Bernie Sanders. My first choice is Bernie Sanders. But I could even imagine voting for Donald Trump. They just literally have a passion for something different than we've ever gotten before. 
Right, and so <clears throat> Bernie likes to use the word, as he did last night, revolution. Um, and, and there does seem to be a revolution taking place. It seems to me that the Bernie Sanders revolution is starkly incompatible with the Donald Trump uh, revolution, uh, you know, when we really sort of get down to what the spirit of each thing is, except the sort of spirit of to the establishment, kind of up yours, you know, somebody else is going to be taking over here. Uh, but, but other than that, it, I, I do find, I mean, I hear the same things that you're describing. I find it more a sign that the people haven't really thought about this very much, that their reaction is essentially a visceral one. They like the unscripted guy, the guy who's telling it like it is, and they like the guy who wants to overturn this, the settled order of things. Uh, of course, Colin wrote about this last night in Salon. Bill Curry wrote about this same issue in Salon over the weekend in his regular column. And in many ways, <laughs> you predicted this, Bill. 22%, though? No, I didn't predict 22%. I, 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 I assumed it would, it, would, it would tighten some. Uh, but, but let me just say a little bit about why you wouldn't predict 22 percent. This was the most votes anyone has ever received in the New Hampshire primary since the first primary in 1952. This is the largest margin of victory in a Democratic presidential primary in New Hampshire in history, and I believe the second uh, largest, except, except when a president was running unopposed in all competitive races. Uh, this is the first time a non-Christian has ever won a presidential primary in America. Uh, this uh, was an historic uh, 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 victory when the Hillary spin machine tries to say he was from next door. I say, first of all, to anyone listening, uh, how many of the senators from Rhode Island can you name? Uh, There was a small advantage to Massachusetts senators because southern New Hampshire was in the Massachusetts market for a Songus or a John Kerry. Even then, it didn't always work. Teddy Kennedy lost to Jimmy Carter. But the idea that some that, that, that because uh, ten people in New Hampshire get their TV from Burlington, Vermont, made this home field. Every state. The reason Hillary started thirty points up in New Hampshire, possibly the biggest fall in the history of presidential primary politics statistically, uh, is that for her every state is a home state. She's the single individual in American politics whom the most voters feel they know the best. And so where she starts out, all 50 states, she has home field advantage in that sense. And so what has happened here, to to try to explain it away in terms of demographics, uh, uh, all all the sort of the the, the racial theories of the firewall, uh, as if every American isn't making decisions here and taking in new information and willing to weigh these things. Uh, Hillary basically has been running for the last month as a kind of legacy admission. People say Sanders drove her to the left. In some ways, he did. He drove her to try to co-opt some left, more progressive uh, themes, trade, uh, climate change, etc. But mostly, he drove her back into the status quo. She wrapped herself in Obama and in Bill Clinton, from whom she'd been distancing herself all last year. In the last month, she made a bet that a kind of loyalty from Democrats to those two personalities would, would make it past her. And, and I would say that the status quo is the last place you want to be in 2016. And as you're talking about the, the spin coming out of, out of this, about Bernie Sanders having this home field advantage, Kalila, as we heard from our, our experts in New Hampshire who know really what's going on on the ground there from New Hampshire Public Radio, they said the quickest way to get a piece of legislation defeated in the New Hampshire legislature is to say they're doing this over in Vermont. <laughs> yeah. Like literally these are two politically yeah. incompatible states. And so that doesn't really hold water. This is a big win for Bernie Sanders. Bill's saying it's pointing at something much larger. Do you think it is? I think it is. And so I think the question is also, do we see this as a political moment 
or is this really the start of a movement, which is sort of what the Sanders campaign is saying. And I think to agree with Colin, you may not agree with his policies, but I don't think anyone is questioning how genuine Bernie Sanders is and the way that he's connecting, particularly with young people. Everyone said young people go to rallies, they don't go vote. Well, they proved that wrong yesterday in massive Mm -hmm. numbers. And when you have 89 percent of young voters supporting someone like Bernie Sanders, you have to take notice of that. And you heard it in Hillary Clinton's concession speech last night. He has really pushed her to address these issues in a way that I think she thought going in, I don't have to. And so you hear these appeals to the people of Flint. You hear these references to mass incarceration that she wasn't saying at the start of the campaign. So win or lose, Bernie Sanders has set the tone for the conversation on the left and the right. And that, to me, is powerful. Something we talked about yesterday in the program, and I I put this to a few Bernie Sanders supporters who were women. Uh, Maria tweeted at me yesterday, Hillary Clinton doesn't represent me. I don't care what gender someone is, damn it. And it actually turned out uh, yesterday that Bernie Sanders won the female vote, too. I mean, this is a big part of this, Kalila. That's powerful. And when you have surrogates like Madeleine Albright saying there's a special place in hell for women who don't vote for women, that doesn't (laughs) connect to people. That doesn't encourage them to go out and vote at all. And so That old mindset of we're just going to appeal to identity strictly based on identity without policy, that does not work. That means she needs to regroup. Colin? I would say in general that um, the tones of nastiness uh, coming out of the Clinton campaign, which is is a gear or a a key that it shifts into pretty easily when things aren't going well, uh, will not serve it well. Um, Bill Clinton, I think, rather than being – the guy you could count on for a charm offensive has kind of been the opposite. Uh, and, and to, to Kalila's point, those kinds of statements, maybe they look good on a coffee cup in your office, but really they don't sound that good on the campaign trail. You don't start sending people to hell because they're not supporting your candidate. That really doesn't work. And, and again, everything the Clinton campaign did in the final weeks was wrong. Uh, I feel badly for Gloria Steinem. I think really was just making an ill-advised joke and not thinking about it when she's on a, on a comedy show. But what Madeleine Albright and Bill said, the, 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 the strong personal attacks on Sanders got them nothing, cost them votes. That the campaign couldn't feel it when it was happening is just stunning to me. And, 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 and when you look at this uh, uh, turnout, two, two things really struck me about it. Number one, the 86 percent of voters under 30 and 70 percent. Voters under 45 went overwhelmingly. There's a generational change here. Clintonism and the neoliberal economics and the neoliberal pay-to-play politics that it stood for is precisely what is at referendum here, really in both parties across the country. And the second amazing thing is that they were pretty much tied among registered uh, voters. All the unaffiliated, just like all of the young, voted for Bernie. And when you look at this argument, the second Clinton argument is she'll do better in a general election. New Hampshire really bore out what every single poll every month for every candidate, and uh, whether it's Hillary or the 17 Republicans. In the general election, Bernie beats them all. So the, the, the Barry Goldwater, George McGovern references, they don't apply to the guy who's winning all the general election matchups. This is a chance to take the cultural uh, issues – the, this Democratic Party, like the Republicans, they've both been held together by caulking and string with the same cultural uh, uh, issues of abortion, guns, same-sex marriage. Both sides work different sides of the street. What Bernie's doing, uh, what, what Trump pretends to do, what Bernie's actually doing is trying to rebuild that coalition on fundamental issues of the integrity of government, the distribution of income, and equal opportunity for all. 
He's trying to make this an economic-based coalition rather than a cultural-based coalition, which is what the FDR coalition was all about. An experiment in cultural politics is really what uh, Sanders is trying to bring to an end here, and it is historic. But but one of the things that I, I hear from a lot of Clinton supporters, Kalila, I hear it. I will hear it more even today, including people who I'm sure will email me after this program. They say, but look— um, a presidential race isn't just about what one candidate says it's about. And Bernie Sanders, when he starts every single speech, and even if he's asked about anything else, he talks about those issues that Bill is talking about and this economic inequality that is the foundation of what he's been telling people and what is energizing all these young people. A lot of Clinton supporters say, yeah, but you start to talk to Bernie Sanders about foreign policy. You start to talk to Bernie Sanders about how he's going to combat ISIS, and he falls short of the Hillary Clinton model of actually having a plan for that. How does he overcome that moving forward? Because that is going to be a part of the conversation after today. Well, I think what Sanders has shown he's capable of doing is saying, I don't know. And I actually appreciate that. That's refreshing to me. I don't know, but I know some really smart people that I can talk to to get that kind of guidance. That will only last for so long. And so you have to articulate that plan, but you also cannot use that old style of politics to just say, I have experience in doing that and think that's enough. Politics and education seem to be the two key areas in our country where experience actually hurts you, where that becomes a source of critique and not a credential, right? Um, you know, but that's, that's where I think that he has an advantage, and Clinton has to be very clear about the why, not just because I've done it before, but the real practical why. Yeah, and I, I do think that the, these areas of so-called strength for Hillary Clinton, and I don't mean to sound so negative, but they're also strengths of weaknesses. I mean, uh, they're also areas of weaknesses, just in the sense that one thing that Bernie Sanders can say back is, you voted for the war, war in Iraq, and you want to tell me I don't have enough foreign policy experience. But beyond that, and this is a point that people are beginning to make more and more, Peter Baker from the uh, New York Times made it on CNN this week, she may be a walking time bomb, you know, with, these, with the email problem heading into the summer. I I mean, Baker raised the possibility there could be a special prosecutor in the middle of the summer. If you've got all of your chips down on Hillary Clinton, there's a possibility that she may be an even bigger liability because of some of this stuff than, than she is right now. Already, I mean, it's, it, I'd love to know what's going on in the New York Times right now. The New York Times, uh, and Bill, I'm sure you noticed this, ran a front page uh, piece this week saying, well... You know, I mean, really, Colin Powell and uh, and Condoleezza Rice—they got some, you know, emails that went to private accounts. And I mean, it was it was such a thinly argued piece. Th- this in no way resembled having a server with thousands of emails on it. <laughs> it really represented an incredible institutional attempt by the New York Times to say, "Oh, this isn't so bad. Everybody does it," uh, and it just it didn't hold water at all. And meanwhile, their White House correspondent Peter Baker is going on other networks saying, "You know, this whole thing could really blow up." Really Really bad, and take the whole party and the Supreme Court and all kinds of things down with it. Uh, Bill, one last thought on this for Greg. You know, just uh, uh, Clinton. Keep a, a mantra of Clinton's speeches in the last few weeks is Bernie and I agree, and the truth is they don't. And on these fundamental issues, there is a clear, stark uh, difference uh, between them. The Times this morning, by the way, just said uh, you know there's a uh, uh, the, the editorial of the Times this morning, which w- w- on the front page of their website was to tell the Clinton campaign people don't to pa- don't panic over one. Uh, one loss. And I thought, wow, 
Whatever you do, guys, in the Clinton campaign, don't believe that editorial. This is time to panic. Uh, Bill Curry is a columnist for Salon.com. Kalila Brown-Dean is a, an associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University. And our own Colin McEnroe is here from the Colin McEnroe Show. When we come back, we're going to turn to the Republican results. We'd like to hear from you at 860-275-7266. It's the wheelhouse on where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. It's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're joined in The Wheelhouse today by our frequent guests, Kalila Brown-Dean from Quinnipiac University and Bill Curry, a columnist for Salon.com. Also joining us, as always, is Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. What's on your show today, Colin? Something that has no connection to what we're talking about right now. But um, everybody knows about Sherlock Holmes. He had that curved pipe. He had the deerstalker cap. He said things like elementary, my dear Watson, except none of that is in the Conan Doyle books. It was all invented by a man named William Gillette, who also has his name on a castle that sits on the Connecticut River. Uh, Gillette was the most famous actor of his day, and we're going to talk about who he was. But he really did, in many ways, invent most of the, many, if not most, of the tropes we associate with Sherlock Holmes. I love this. So William Gillette today on the Colin McEnroe Show, not the William Gillette. But (laughs) if you want to join us at 1 o'clock today, we're talking about the results of the New Hampshire primary. We talked about the Democrats to start Bernie Sanders with a big win over Hillary Clinton. With eight candidates on the Republican side, there are a lot of takeaways. Uh, Donald Trump won his first state. John Kasich finished runner-up. Even Rand Paul had a decent showing for someone who dropped out of the race a week ago. Now, here's Trump talking about some of his Republican opponents. A number of them called, and I just wanted to thank them, but I wanted to congratulate the other candidates, okay? Now that I got that over with. You know, it's always tough, and then tomorrow, boom, boom. <laughs> it's, he's so gracious. It's lovely. Yeah, he's Donald a lovely Tr- man. Donald Trump. I think we've learned that. <laughs> 35% of the votes last night. Kalila, we knew he had a big uh, lead going into New Hampshire. We also knew that he was doing it the non-traditional way. The New Hampshire way is you go to pancake breakfast and you put on flannel and you walk from lodge to lodge and you talk to a bunch of people who've been doing this for years. Now, that's what John Kasich did, the Ohio governor, who came in a surprise second at 16 percent. Donald Trump did none of that and won fairly handily. What does it tell us about Donald Trump? What does it tell us about New Hampshire and John Kasich? Well, I have to say the the visual of Donald Trump in a flannel is very disturbing to me. I would love to see that. So I'm glad that he didn't do that. Thank you for that. But I think what we've seen, so we expected Donald Trump to do very well, and he has this larger-than-life personality that a lot of people want to go and just see the spectacle. So that wasn't surprising. But in many ways, I think John Kasich became, you know, the Beyonce of the GOP race here. No one was talking about Coldplay. They were talking about Beyonce. No one was talking about Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. They were talking about John Kasich. And that, to me, was a sign of his ground game, his organization. That, by the way, is the only <laughs> way that John Kasich <laughs> I, I, I want to thank, thank Coldplay for explaining, for explaining how, in God's name, John Kasich was Beyonce but of anything. It worked. He does, it does, it does work. Thank you. I can't believe you brought that home. Right. And I'm a former resident of right. the Buckeye State. He doesn't so even have a formation. Go ahead, please. But to the point, I think what John Kasich has shown is that he was able to stay on message and stay on message in a way that was relatable. It wasn't this Marco Rubio, here's my talking point, this is where I'm going to stay. But to say to people, let's think about what's best for the country, not party and ideology. That played very well in New Hampshire. I'm not convinced that it will play the same way in South Carolina, where people are much more rigid in their thinking, their ideology, their party choice. But Kasich did it the old-fashioned way, 
Trump wasn't, didn't need to do it that way because he has the personality factor. It's the old-fashioned way, Bill, but it's also, I mean, the thing that we've seen about John Kasich in these debates, and if people didn't know very much about him, he's the guy who stands on the end of the stage, he has his hand in his pocket, and he talks somewhat sensibly many, many times about how people can work together, about how he was in Congress and, and he was also a governor of state, and he knows how to get things done. And, you know, people can all come together, and America's not so bad. It's I, I know that John Kasich probably isn't going to be the Republican nominee. It seems likely. But that said, he is the polar opposite of Donald Trump, almost as polar opposite as John Kasich is from Beyonce. But, but I mean, think about that. These are the two candidates who did the best, and they really are complete opposites, Bill. You know, it really um, – <laughs> I was thinking there was this moment watching the, the last Republican debate when, when Rubio – uh, started repeating himself. It 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 reminded me of when Sigourney Weaver figured out that Lance Henriksen was a was a cyborg, an alien. It was just you're thinking like this guy's not even human. It was frightening to watch, and he plummeted, and that made an opening for John Kasich to get heard. And now listening to the commentary, the basic analysis from last night on television was John Kasich is too decent, mature, experienced, and reasonable to be nominated by the Republican Party. And I think there's something to it. He reminds me of Republicans I worked with in legislature decades ago before it all went south. I just want to say one thing about about where that race stood. And, and Trump, you know, is is getting, in fact, more attention. And the Republican race is getting more attention this morning in the national media than Sanders is getting. Sanders did something far more historic. We don't know that Trump is capable of getting to 60 percent. He's still right about at his one-third. And the question that hangs over that race is whether someone like Kasich – or Bush now, has a chance to consolidate all that, that half of the party that says Trump's not acceptable to them. Go ahead, um, Colin. Well, first of all, a test of Kasich's strength will be whether people in America can learn to pronounce his name. I can tell you that no member of the Curry family that I've talked to uh, <laughs> knows how to do it, and a lot of people on TV don't know how to do it either. A lot of people on MSNBC don't know how to do it. So that's a bad sign. I can't sign. believe you've sunk that low. <laughs> I'm just really no, it's just, shocked, it's just really. a bad sign for a candidate. Yeah, we're trying if, to elevate the level of public discourse here. <laughs> and actually, I had to go to a, like a class with John and Tucker where they actually taught me how to say Kasich because I was doing the same thing. I mean, this is that's how visible this guy is. People don't know how, how his name is pronounced. He's got $2.5 million cash on hand. Trump owns a jet. How much do you have? <laughs> well, no. Trump owns a jet that's worth $100 million. $100 million. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's his plane is $100 million. So, and he's got no organization. My, my guess is, and, and I'm not, um, I'm not subtracting any of the things that have been said about him here so far, because yeah, he is that kind of reasonable guy and that probably plays pretty well with certain audiences. But I would also say he's the one guy in the field that, you know, if he sat there in some general store in, in Keene, you know, in a flannel shirt, nobody would say, where are you from originally? You know, <laughs> I mean, he looks like he's probably from New Hampshire in a way that Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and Chris Christie, they don't come across that way. So that may be another part of his advantage last night. That may be worth two or three points. And it's why he's not clustered in the middle of the pack. I would also like to say, just in terms of the rest of them, Chris Christie uh, and, and Ted Cruz and, and Jeb Bush, they always have the Lieberman option. In 2004, here's what Joe Lieberman had to say. Based on the returns that we've seen tonight, thanks to the people of New Hampshire, we are in a three-way split decision for third place. Yeah. Which, in fact, he was. He, was. he finished fifth, <laughs> he finished actually, fifth yeah. which is almost like that. And you know what he, <laughs> so do you remember what he said he had? 
Joe Mentum. Yeah. He had Joe Mentum. That he was, was Joe Mentum. Joe Mentum out of New Hampshire. He, he said it was a statistical tie, yeah. which apparently means yeah, not a real one. Yeah, <laughs> statistical, which has a second meaning, meaning it isn't. Well, well, look, so, Kaleida, what, what does all this say about moving forward, right? So we have this sort of clustering of candidates. We have a few establishment candidates, the Marco Rubio, not Ted Cruz. We're not going to call him establishment, but he's certainly a member of the Senate. And, of course, Jeb Bush, not doing terribly well. Chris Christie kind of limping back to New Jersey reassessing his campaign. I mean, what comes out of all this? So I think we'll definitely see over the next few days some of these candidates dropping, um, and some of them should. And so I think the question will be, how are they going to reallocate their support and who are they going to support? I'm thinking of what it's going to look like this Sunday in South Carolina when you see so many of those candidates going to black churches to try to drum up support, you know, going to the local diners in South Carolina to kind of have that appeal. You know, and, and it's more of a hope of, you know, well, what can we do? When Donald Trump says, I will do more for African-American people in this country than Barack Obama did. Okay, but what are you going to do to show that going forward? And who are the candidates who feel like they can have that appeal to Latino voters in Nevada, to working class people across the South and the Midwest? And so that's the message. Do you have the money to maintain your campaign? Most do not. But are you going to let your ego prevent you from doing the right thing, which is to drop? I I have to get to a quick phone call from Paul in East Hartford. Go ahead, Paul, quickly. Uh, Yes. Voters are angry, but they're not analytical. Whoever wins on the Democratic side, whether it be uh, Hillary or Sanders, the Republican House of Representatives will just stop everything cold, which means that it's essential that a Democratic president be in there and change the Supreme Court. And that means you need the more electable person, who probably is Hillary. But maybe they need to bring Biden or somebody else out to do it. Sanders will be clobbered as a socialist, a communist, someone who's going to destroy people's uh, business coverage of insurance. Well, I... Yeah, it's I, an easy knockout for the Republicans. And, and Paul, thank you very much for your phone call. I don't know that he's a communist, but the the, the point you you have is is well taken. Bill, go ahead. We just have a minute. Let me just say, if, if if you've been paying any attention, if you've been paying any attention to the, the the political mood in this country right now, and you think that socialist is a harder label to explain than corrupt or untrustworthy or dishonest, all these candidates carry baggage. Trump's baggage is that he's acted like a neo-fascist through most of his campaign. It's a legitimate. Analysis. That's a word I've never used before, but it's uh, t- uh, in, in American politics. And so they all carry baggage. I think, I think that, uh, uh, that, that, that Bernie's may be the lightest, and all the polling data we have says so. Uh, Colin, just just the last minute on this. I mean, where do we see these candidates ending up? Because there is this clustering. And as Kalila says, we've got to get support between these candidates who are starting to drop out. But who supports whom? I mean, they hate, seem to all hate each other desperately. Right. I, don't, I think we're not at that point yet. Um, and I don't know who's going to drop. The Kasich thing kind of muddies the water. I mean, if you're Rubio, you, if you want to put a happy face on it, you can say, well, Kasich can kind of hold that spot until I can get my act back together again. Kasich's probably not viable long term, has no organization. Um, uh, you know, so you can sort of look at it that way, that, that, that ultimately maybe Rubio is going to be the consensus non-Trump, non-Cruz candidate, and, and that, uh, you know, the Kasich will hold that spot until Rubio is ready to claim it. Actually, what Marco Rubio says is Barack Obama knows exactly what he's doing, and he says it a few more times. When we come back from this break, we'll talk more politics. Right now, some people are going to tell you why you should support WNPR. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. It's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable each Wednesday. 
Uh, it coming up on tomorrow's show, I should tell you that we're going to be talking with David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker and the host of the New, New Yorker Radio Hour. We're going to be talking about how to turn this great magazine into a radio show. We're also going to be talking about how the Radius Project is mapping Hartford in a new way, a fascinating new program that we're putting out on a podcast and on a website. Hopefully you can join us for that conversation tomorrow. Today in the wheelhouse, we're talking with Colin McEnroe, as always. He's the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Bill Curry is here. He's a columnist for Salon.com. And Kalila Brown-Dean is an associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University. Maybe a little bit more time left for some political talk coming out of New Hampshire later on. But I want to get to some Connecticut news. Uh, one of the priorities for state Republicans during this legislative session is to keep lawmakers off the Appropriations Committee if they work for an entity that receives grant money of budget line items from Connecticut. It's turned into a little bit of a kerfuffle between Themis Claritus, uh, the House Minority Leader, and Beth Bai, the state senator, Colin, uh, Senator Bai recently got a job at a, a farm at a nonprofit, and she is working there full time. Uh, Themis Claritus and other Republicans are taking exception with this. How is this different from like all the other jobs that all the other lawmakers have ever held that maybe have a little bit of dealings with the state? It's not. And, and this is the failure of Themis Claritus. Th- Themis Claritus is a person I'm personally fond of. I enjoy her in social settings, uh, but she's been a terrible minority leader and, and has essentially ignored the second word in that title. She's not leading. She's just doing stunts right now. So, And, and what infuriates me is that this is a serious problem. Uh, the, the serious problem is the part-time legislature, and as you said, many of them have jobs which periodically run into conflict with the business that they're doing. Some have had jobs which essentially conflict with all of the business that they're doing. So Themis's predecessor, Larry Caffaro, was a lawyer with Brown Rufkin, one of the most influential lobbying firms at, at the Capitol, which invariably has dozens, scores of bills that it's pursuing. Um, and, and at no point did Larry feel as though he had to recuse himself. On the other side, people like Chris Donovan and many other uh, officers of the legislature uh, have had jobs with state employee unions. Uh, these are materially affected by any budget that you put out. So my argument has been there needs to be a set of rules, and people need to recuse themselves when they're hearing business that does affect their employment or their spouse's employment. The only person I've ever seen really seriously pursue this is John McKinney, who was uh, the predecessor uh, of, uh, of Lynn Fasano on the other on the Senate chamber. He was the minority leader in the Senate chamber. McKinney was serious about this. This is not a serious bill. It's a political stunt. And it's a stupid political stunt because them has picked one of the most well-liked and respected legisla- legislators, Beth Bayh, to go after. The bill is about Beth Bayh. It's not about the problem. Problem. And, and Themis should be ashamed of that because it's a serious problem. It needs to be talked about. And because of her, it won't get talked about because she turned it into a stunt, a way of jabbing an ice pick uh, at one particular legislator. Big mistake. And also just say one particular legislature, legislator who probably has as many problems with the way the Malloy administration is handling budgeting in the state as anybody on the Republican side. I mean, Beth Bayh is somebody who probably is going to be working very hard on some of the same things that Republicans are going to be working on, which is trying to figure out how to get a budget that works for more people in Connecticut than the one that uh, they think that Malloy has put forward. Yeah, if you wanted a good voice for responsible reform, you'd have one in Beth Bayh. So she's the wrong enemy to pick about all this stuff, too. I, I mean, I can't imagine. Well, I can't imagine what possessed them as Claritus, but it was the wrong thing to be possessed by. Bill? Yeah, just, uh, to follow up two points. One, uh, uh, I have enormous respect for Beth Bayh, and uh, and I can tell you firsthand, this is an ethically meticulous person. Uh, this isn't just someone who would actually help in reform. This is someone who's 
career in public life is a model for caring about just these issues. So talk about picking the wrong target. And then the second target is she went to work for the 4-H club. And if you want to just, you know, it's almost a laugh line, the idea that the 4-H club is taking over the General Assembly. Well, they are when, the Illuminati. Too. Yeah, they are the yeah. Illuminati. You know, and, uh, and so you do have a real issue here uh, uh, about revolving doors, about people working for insurers and big banks and, and public utilities. Uh, but everybody has gotten some kind of tax break or grant from the state. To pick up Beth By and the 4-H club as your <laughs> reform targets is just preposterous. Well, well let's get to a, a bigger issue that comes out of all this, though. And as Colin said, this is sort of a larger problem. We've floated, Kalila, ideas like what if we had a smaller unicameral legislature that was actually full-time and people devoted their lives to this? If we had something that was different as a system, we wouldn't have to worry about these part-time lawmakers spending half their time trying to make money at their day jobs and the other half of their time trying to pass legislation that very well might conflict with their day jobs. Wouldn't it make more sense to have, like, full-time lawmakers who just concentrated on running the state? Well, I think it would definitely change perhaps the people who can even run and serve in the legislature. You have to have a certain type of job and profession to be able to take that kind of time away, to have the resources to do a full-time job, you know, for that set period of time with the money. But I think the bigger point here is also this is a partisan issue. It's not a principled issue in terms of how it's been framed in this particular attack. And that's problematic because it may inflame some voters and get some people riled up. But as Colin said, it does not get back to the most basic issue of what is it that's at stake here How do we make sure that we're rooting out corruption and being transparent and not attacking people who, as Bill said, are really serving the public interest in an ethical way? And uh, the other part of the structural problem here is that Beth Bayh, like everybody in the legislature, went to the Office of Ethics, the State Office of Ethics, and got an opinion saying that she can do this, which is good for Beth Bayh. I mean, it's also true, as far as I can tell, OJ could have gotten an opinion saying that it was okay to kill those people. I mean, the Office of State Ethics never turns anybody down for anything as far as I can tell. But which once again, and the reason they don't do do that isn't because that they're bad people. It's because there, there aren't clear rules that they can invoke saying, no, 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 you can't do that. <laughs> we, so if the rules don't exist, you, you're never going to get ethical opinions. I, I, I think on the list of analogies that are coming out of today, I, I, I think I like the Beyonce thing <laughs> that Kalila did earlier no, a little bit better, Colin. It's yeah. just me, though. Yeah. Um, Colin, we're going we're gonna to turn actually to a story that we saw in The New York Times on Sunday. And it's, uh, it's really kind of interesting. Essentially, the state is facing a lawsuit. Um, and I'm going to read from The Times here. A complaint seeks unspecified damages for plaintiffs who were ordered to stay inside apartments and homes for up to three weeks in fall of 2014 with police officers posted outside the residences. Colin, this has to do with an Ebola scare that happened all around the nation and, frankly, all around the world. And the Malloy administration's um, reading of state law and what they did, essentially, these plaintiffs are saying, this is an overreach. You can't constitutionally keep us behind doors with no scientific evidence that we've got Ebola. Right. So and, and they've even said you did this for political purposes. Right. One of the participants in this action is saying this was done essentially as a political action in order to mollify constituents as opposed to proceeding on the basic science. Uh, the thing that I find especially hilarious is sort of back to that point about how blunt talk, plain talk, honesty is so rare in political life. The Malloy administration in commenting on this said uh, in the article that ran yesterday in The Current, it's really great to see these young 
young, nimble minds, uh, you know, working in law <laughs> and pursuing really interesting legal actions. We really applaud them for doing that, uh, which I think probably is not the attitude towards this lawsuit that is genuinely circulating in the suite of governor's offices right now. I, I, I will just say quickly from, from my standpoint, something that I wanted to point out that was interesting about this story was it was it was leaked to The New York Times as an exclusive. Uh, these young, nimble minds sort of wanted to hold off this information going to the rest of us, which didn't exactly allow the rest of the press corps, which covers the Malloy administration, to seek any comment from, say, the attorney general, the state of Connecticut, from the governor and his officials himself, from the State Department of Public Health. The New York Times story kind of relied on some old quotes from the Department of Public Health commissioner, didn't get any new comment. It just kind of felt a little bit, when I saw this story, as though it was slanted entirely toward just one side. That's just me, Bill. It's the second time now we've taken a swipe at the New York Times. The gray lady's not having a good day here on yeah. the wheelhouse. We're tough. The uh, I would just like to say to amuse myself that this is exactly what Chris Christie did in New Jersey, uh, which is uh, quarantine people without uh, really the right to do it. And uh, and secondly, that this is probably another suit that the state's going to lose uh, and that there is a great value uh, in, in having our chief executive and all of his administration understand that winning elections doesn't empower you to just start setting your own rules. That there's a there's an apparatus and a protocol and a legal structure of governance here, and it begins in the Constitution and has to be followed. But but, but to be fair, Kalila, when, when Chris Christie did it, he looked directly into the camera and he said, yeah. I'm a former, former prosecutor, and so that's why I was able to do this. And that's my favorite Christie line. So I think the rules of the game matter, definitely, but I think public pressure also matters. And I think we have to take into account how we kind of fuel the flames of this panic about Ebola and people saying, shut down the border, don't allow American citizens to come back, quarantine them. There was a lot of public support for that at the time. And I'm starting to wonder what that will be like for the Zika virus. Will we start hearing people say, do whatever is necessary? <laughs> right? We, we yeah. are. Yeah, and so was. in those moments of panic, it seems that people are willing to relax mm. our constitutional protections. Doesn't mean that government should do it, but we also have to account that for that public ha- pressure. It happens all the time. President Obama and a majority of governors resisted it at the time. Time. Uh, I mean, there's two there's two ways you can go here, uh, and uh, again, I don't want I don't want to make too too big a deal out of it, but there is this this theme uh, through many administrations in this state uh, for a very long a, a period of time about whether or not uh, the app the the the, uh, the machinery of government is itself in a nonpartisan way to be to be to be respected when you're governing, and um, it just it just keeps cropping up. If a very few people being quarantined for a short period of time because of the very remote threat of Ebola is something we should talk about, we should also talk about the the people who are in some ways quarantined in long lines at the DMV. The State Department of Motor Vehicles has, has not been working very well, we know, because of uh, some cuter, uh, computer malfunctions and switchovers. Now Governor Malloy has proposed some changes to the department. He wants residents to be able to register their vehicles, even if they owe taxes and parking fines. That will cut down on the number of trips, outsource some functions to third parties like AAA and registration services. Uh, what do you think of the response, maybe even in legislation, uh, coming up from the Malloy administration to the troubles of the DMV, Colin? Well, tons of people got Zico waiting in those lines. So um, <laughs> Not true. Not true. That's <laughs> not true. That's people. A He's kidding. See, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> this is exactly how it happens. That's right there. Okay. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I didn't know the truth because those obnoxious little yaley snots wouldn't tell me. They only told the New York Times. <laughs> yeah. All right, so um, a couple of things about this. First of all, to me, the most hilarious response was written by Jonathan Pelto uh, on his blog today. Jonathan Pelto, uh, who was uh, on the verge of challenging Governor Malloy in the last election. And, <laughs> and Jonathan's point, kind of hilariously, is, wow, they gave Malloy all that campaign money, and he acted so uh, – the state employees gave Malloy all that campaign money, and then he acted so greatly – so grateful. And now he's screwing them. Boy, we thought he was bought in paid for. You know, so Jonathan is really objecting to the fact that Malloy is exercising any kind of independent judgment right now, uh, considering the fact that they, the state employees could have, in Jonathan's view, reasonably assumed that they owned him. Um, so, I mean, to that end, you sort of say, well, maybe it's kind of good. And to tell you the truth, if Malloy manages to outsource registrations to AAA, He's going to get applause for this. I mean, I, I recently had to replace my driver's license. I went to AAA. It took me less than five minutes. Less than five minutes. There's no way. We can talk all day long about the professionalization of these services and, and you know, and whatever the stick that state employees have. Uh, but there's no way that the average person isn't going to think, that's great. I can go to AAA and get my registration done. That's going to be a political winner. And maybe it should be a political winner. The trickier one might be the tax collection. Right now, you can't re-register uh, unless you've paid your taxes, um, your, your local municipal property taxes on your car. Uh, and, and that's um, a covenant that he's trying – he's trying to unhook those two things because he thinks it causes delays. People show up to register their cars. It turns out they have an unpaid tax bill they didn't know about. They leave. They come back. They leave. They come back. They get really mad. Um, for the municipalities, that's going to be a problem. They kind of depend on that apparatus to get those back taxes. Uh, one other thing that's not really connected to what the governor is doing, though, is uh, Secretary of State Denise Merrill has proposed her own idea for the DMV to automatically register people to vote when they do business with the department. The idea is grounded in the view that every eligible citizen of this country who has reached the age of 18 should be automatically registered and able to vote. Look, we just have a minute or so left, Kalila, but it gets us back to the beginning here. People voting, making it more accessible for people, getting people more excited about it. Denise Merrill says you go to the DMV, you automatically get signed up to vote. I totally agree. I think it is an unnecessarily cumbersome process to register. It discourages people from participating. And I think there are very valid reasons why, if we know all of your information, we can track you down, you should be automatically registered. You could opt out. If if you went to a Donald Trump rally yesterday, they'd say widespread voter fraud. They'd say, oh, my goodness, people are going to be voting who shouldn't be voting. And instead, what we see is widespread voter disenfranchisement, not voter fraud. But that's an argument for breathalyzing people who are registering to vote. <laughs> In, uh, That's something the DMV can do, too. You, you have five yeah, seconds, Bill. Uh, uh, voter, voter suppression has been one of the worst and most pervasive trends in this country. The right to vote is the quintessential constitutional right, and it is that. It is a right, and it has to be treated that way, and Denise is doing that, so good for her. You can read what Bill Curry's writing about politics in Salon.com. Thanks, as always, Bill. My pleasure. Thanks to Kalila Brown, Dean, Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University. Thanks, Kalila. Good to see you. And thanks to our own Colin McEnroe Show, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Continue this online, WNPR.org.